So hello, this is um, Theo Blackmore from Disability Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly. And today I'm talking to... Lynn Turnbull, who uh, I'm the Chief Exec at Disability Positive in, uh, based in Cheshire. Brilliant. So Disability Positive. So you're very far away from us. Cheshire's a... I've got some friends from Cheshire, actually. Cheshire's a very rural county, is it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like everywhere. There's parts of rurality and there's parts that are a bit more urban, but it's... Um, it's it's pretty rural and quite big, yeah. Famous for cheese. Yes, love Cheshire cheese. Great. So, yeah, so you probably deal with a lot of the same issues that we all do with that down here in Cornwall. So lots of the issues, you know, for your organisation from disabled people living in rural areas like rural isolation, poor infrastructure, lo local transport issues, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So... So how is it as a CEO of Disability Positive? What, what kinds of things do you deal with, all of that stuff? So it's been interesting, really, Theo. I just finished a postgraduate certificate in, in strategic leadership, and I wrote my leadership assignment on um, leadership as a disabled leader um, through a pandemic, which was certainly uh, very interesting and had its own challenges as a leader of a disabled people's organisation uh, with a majority workforce uh, who've got lived experience um, of, of disabling barriers in society, um, but also um, my, my own sort of lived experience really. Um, and it, it probably, I think I titled the assignment A Bird in a Hurricane, which is probably quite apt in terms of how it felt at the time. Um, yeah. But we we acted pretty quickly in terms of sending people home uh, to work from home. And luckily we had the infrastructure and the systems to be able to do that. Um, but I've, um, I, I love being a leader here actually. And I love actually the notion of that kind of lived experience leadership. Um, I think that's actually really important and was invaluable uh, through, through the pandemic, actually. So what does lived experience bring then to the conversation, as it were? I, I think because you, you have got a better understanding of, of the impact, so particularly from COVID, rather than just kind of being a leader, but not really understanding what the um, additional risks might be or the additional impact might be having that lived experience yourself you can bring that into the leadership role to really sort of show that empathy and share what the challenges are with with the staff and and be really open and, and have those conversations about those challenges and actually how how you're planning on overcoming them to make sure that people feel involved in the discussion and understand why what's happening is happening. So I think I think it brings a, a really unique part to, to that leadership aspect. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember I was interviewing some disabled people for a project and the difference between being a disabled person and not a not disabled person. So I was interviewing disabled people and at some points in the conversation, various different people would say to me just off the cuff, you know, I've been doing this today, you know what it is, you know what it's like. And you can genuinely answer, yes, I do know what it's like, actually. You know, yeah. they say, I catch the train every now and again, but you know what it's like. And it's like, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, definitely. And I have conversations with friends, you know. I remember we went on, I went on holiday with my wife years ago. We went somewhere and the hotel was fully accessible, we were told, by a non-disabled travel agent we arrived there at three o'clock in the morning we got there and we said great where's our room he said oh it's on the second floor the lift's over there we went over my wheelchair wouldn't fit in the lift Amazing. You know, 
just little disasters like that you can really yeah. empathize with people when when you're talking to disabled people because of those sort of issues yeah so the pandemic you mentioned there you know the pandemic was incredible wasn't it as as an organization i think that what happened to disability cornwall i've said this before in other podcasts was that we became very proactive instead of very reactive so we were f- reaching out to disabled people in rural areas who are isolated making sure that they got their food making sure they got medicine making sure they had social contact and ppe and all of that kind of stuff i guess you probably did the same kind of things very similar actually theo and it was you know the ppe um was an extraordinary point i think really particularly around people who direct their own care yeah Um, and and so it wasn't quite as easy you couldn't you couldn't phone up the central line to order ppe as a disabled person employing your own staff uh, you couldn't get it because you weren't working for a, a care agency um so we we worked with the local authorities to get mass deliveries here and then we we just used volunteers to to get those out to people so that they they could um re- receive them and and keep themselves safe while they were still having their pa going in and supporting them at home so yeah, we, we also were reactive and, and that same bit around um, the, the social interaction, so regular contact with people. So it might have been the only contact that they had for for the week. Um, mm-hmm. But just touching base and it, it would flag up if there are any concerns that you could then kind of raise and, and then deal, deal with separately. So if you didn't hear from somebody consistently, it would ring some alarm bells and, and you could obviously just flag that to make sure that people were were safe and well. Yeah, I mean, we we also we kind of did a bit of work. We took over a rugby pitch and just use it as an outdoor safe space so that we could then go there on good weather days and do just a bit of walking and talking with people. So people had social contact and we also used the kitchen there. So we cooked up meals for people and things like that. Yeah, it's brilliant. As it progressed, you know, we were then delivering meals to people's houses when they couldn't come to see that to that space. So, you know, all of that kind of stuff, I think that's some of the advantages of being in a rural area, because I can't imagine you do that in some inner city location in the same kind of way. No, it's it, it's a very it's a very different response. And although there's been similarities, uh, Theo, across different DPOs, um, there have, have been some nuances of, of points of difference, haven't there, on, on, in terms of you know where they're located and what the needs were I suppose in the local area at the time um, and how maybe the wider sector responded in terms of the wider community sector um, so I think there was a, a big response and I think that was uh, really appreciated both by disabled people but also um, you know the public sector who were also <laughs> you know we're in a pandemic and uh, and what are we going to do and I think I think we gave some really good answers and solutions during what was a very difficult time. You know, that's really interesting, the whole thing about the public sector. So I don't know what what your relationship as an organisation is with the public sector or with like your local authority or with your local health authorities. But we had a relationship before the pandemic, but following the pandemic and during the pandemic, it it greatly improved. It got much better because they realised that we're in contact with a whole set of people that they just didn't know about. And, and even people who are receiving personal assistance and direct payments, you know, they didn't actually necessarily know directly where those people were. So no. it was it was something that they reached out to us to help them to to get contact with those people. 
Yeah, we 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 had a similar thing where we've always had an um a good relationship with with the with the local authorities, um and health or uh, and the ICS as it is now. But we um it, it was much better during the pandemic and things like the vaccine rollout for personal assistance and um, that the local authorities couldn't do that on their own and, and couldn't reach all the PAs because they, they didn't know who they were. Um, so I, I think that was another area where we were sort of really key in, in, in making sure we could get the message out that PAs were able to, to get the vaccine. Um, so yeah, I think that was uh, tr another tremendous part and it's quite good um, having just done a, a witness statement for the COVID inquiry, actually, that's a really good period of reflection, just to kind of reflect back on some of the things that uh, happened during COVID and what the impact was on disabled people. And it's been really interesting just to reflect back on, on, on that process, really, and, and some of the things that we did to, to help. So you used some initials there, which some people might not know. You said ICS. What's, what is ICS? Sorry, the integrated care system. Sorry, Theo, we should learn not to use acronyms. Um, but that's kind of the replacement, the, the partnership sort of work around here. So we've got a, a Cheshire and Merseyside footprint for the integrated uh, care uh, board. Um, and that's obviously made up of the different places uh, across Cheshire and Merseyside. Um, so that's the replacement for the clinical commissioning groups. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? All the jargon we have to go through. Yeah. So, so basically they are, that's kind of health and social care, is it, coming together yeah. and working together? And are you involved in that process locally? Um, the in, the voluntary sector, health watcher involved, obviously, which is separate to us, the local health watcher integral to it as the wider voice for kind of citizens in, in health and care. Um, the local... Um, infrastructure voluntary sector organization and um, attend the place uh, the place partnership locally um, but we kind of attend a, a sector leadership group in, in the local area which is made up of a range of chief execs from different community sector organizations um, so we're able to kind of feed in. So although we've only got one place on there, we're able to make sure that we can represent our, our different groups, um, if, you, if you like, well, that we support. Um, but they, they've got some work streams attached to it. So I go to one of the, the work streams around governance, which isn't everyone's bag because it can be quite dry, um, but I, I don't mind governance. So just helping organise the governance around the, the uh, place uh, partnership. Yeah, you're you're always top of the toes, aren't you, in relation to governance and all of that kind of keeping things going. I think it's years and years of being a company secretary and having oh, to yeah. kind of know the um, company company law and the charity legislation that kind of underpins it. I'm not I'm not the company secretary anymore, but I did it for long enough where you just kind of I think even as a chief exec, Theo, you're living and breathing governance all day, every day, yeah, um, you... in some shape or form. And so we talked, we went through the COVID pandemic there, which was what it was, and it was a complete nightmare. And, you know, 66 or more percent of the people who died from COVID were disabled people, and it's it's not finished. We've just had, I don't work from the office, I work from home, but um, the office currently, they've had a couple of COVID cases there. I mean, are you back in the office again as an organisation? Um, yeah, it's a really good... Uh, we. 
During the pandemic, we had about 75 of our 77 staff working from home um, and a couple that were kind of very, very office related. It was very difficult to have them working from home because of what their job entails. Um, but since, uh, was it, I think it was November 2021, we changed people's contracts to work from home permanently as a, as a permanent solution. That doesn't mean everyone does work from home. Um, we're finding that although people's contracts say that they work from home, they'll come in for team meetings and um, they might come in and do one day a week just so that they've got a bit of interaction. I think, again, that's based on being very individual. So some staff might live alone. So actually being able to see work colleagues gives them a bit of interaction with people. Um, some love working from home and it works very well and, and, and don't come in very often. But we, we've got the building and, and we've, we kind of re reimagine the space to put more hot desk in um, areas in. So the staff who kind of are working from home get to kind of come into this space and they've got this real vibrant buzz going on when, when they're all in and, and they're all kind of at a desk. So it's, it's quite nice to see how it works, but most people are, are, are at home most of the time. So, yeah, so that, and that's what you've done is it as well. Well, no, our organisation, lots of people back in the office again, because that's what they that's the way the way they prefer to work. There's yeah. there's all sorts of stuff tied up in it, isn't there? Like you say, there's people who live on their own. So it's it's kind of the social contact and it's that kind of thing that people get from work in a big way. Yeah. But there's also the stuff about how organisations work and how do you share that information and that whole thing about being able to talk across a desk and say, hang on a minute, I've got this going on. What do you do in that situation? And yeah. and, and I think that's what people miss. But we. We tailored the contracts for individuals. So people who said that they preferred to work from the office, their contracts continue to say that they work from the office. Those who preferred to work from home, it says that they work from home. So we were fairly flexible in terms of the response to that, really, based on individuals. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's nice that people will get together for a, a meeting, um, you know, so you get to see each other because it's, it's great seeing people virtually and some of the solutions that we did in being able to keep working during the pandemic, technology's uh, been amazing. Um, but sometimes you're quite right, there's nothing like having someone across from you that you can just say, oh, I've got this happening. What do you think about that? And just sounding people out. Yeah. And it's amazing. So, you know, we are living in a completely different world. This is something that many disabled people have been campaigning for for years, trying to get more homework in because... We can, you know, we have been able to do it for years, but with the pandemic, suddenly everyone had to do it. So therefore it was available to everybody. And so therefore disabled people could do it as well. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, so I was talking to some DPOs and they were saying things like, well, it's nothing new to us. We've been doing it for years anyway. We've got staff who work at home from bed and, you know, from all sorts of different situations. So why is no different for us as an organisation? No. You know. That was very interesting. So you you also mentioned in passing that you've just finished a um, qualification. What is it that you've just done? It's a postgraduate certificate in strategic leadership. So, yeah, it was fascinating. Really enjoyed it, actually, going back to uh, academia and, and doing literature reviews. It's It's been a while, but, yeah, really enjoyed it. So was that through a local university or a college or something? Yeah, so through the University of Chester um, and... Uh, the assignments were um, based on, so one on leadership, one on uh, governance and finance and one on marketing. So they were interesting, but they all had a thread of COVID going through it, either during COVID or life after COVID. Um, 
more, more to do with the timing of it really and, and it was kind of fresh but again just a really good period of reflection on both what the um, literature tells us and what we can take from that and actually how that applied in the workplace and how relevant that was to us and what learning there is to take from it so it's been it's been quite interesting and the kind of recommendations that I made to myself I suppose within the assignments we've kind of implemented as a, within the organisation so that's been quite interesting as well. Great so academia feeding into real life big time. Yeah, it, it was really interesting to see, I think, Theo. And I think one of the main ones was when you look at the, going back to the leadership bit, but actually it was a common theme through all of them. When you look at any um, research around uh, diversity and leadership, for example, particularly during the pandemic, you, you know, you found lots of um, in data and intelligence around uh, diversity in terms of ethnicity and gender um, and, and sexual orientation but nothing at all about disability which I found very interesting in its absence almost like it had been forgotten as a protected characteristic yeah um, and and I suppose that 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 was a really interesting uh, piece I suppose for for the assignments that the the absence of it yeah it did appear to as though it had not been considered as a as an area of sort of diversity to think about from a leadership point of view you know it's interesting isn't it so disabled people we are without doubt the largest minority group you know it's almost <laughs> we're there's almost so many of us that we're not a minority anymore um but we are excluded from all sorts of things in that kind of way you know when you're going through academic literature it's quite hard to find things sometimes when you're looking at a particular subject which includes disability because it includes all the other protected characteristics, like you say. Yeah. Which is a strange thing. And it's part of the role, I think, of DPOs to stop that from happening. But, you know, I had this conversation just a couple of days ago with um, Tracy Lazard from Inclusion London. And we were talking then about how, you know, from the 1970s up to the present day, you know, there's all sorts of different minority groups that have increased in kind of status in many ways and increase their kind of local public awareness of it but disability doesn't seem to have done that in the same kind of way and it's still a job that we we've got to do yeah it's a, it's a huge it's a huge challenge i think theo that we we face uh, here but i think collectively across across uh, dpos and and I, I do think about that um quite a lot really you know is it just good marketing has there just been someone behind really really excellent marketing campaigns that have raised the profile um but I, I and I try and work out why we haven't achieved the same thing despite all the sort of activism and despite all the fighting for for all the time in terms of the right for independent living etc for, for disabled people but in terms of that profile, particularly in the media, it is it is really interesting. Is it because it's it's so big, people don't understand the the breadth of the, of the the barriers that exist within society, or is it because people still don't necessarily understand the social model, so are still looking at things very much from the kind of we can fix you kind of scenario from a, a medical model. Um, but it, but it is quite interesting how how it doesn't seem to have the voice, despite the fact, as you say, we're quite rightly with the largest minority group. Yeah, it's like one in seven of the population or more. And yeah. the whole thing about the social model, if you walk out in the street and you said to somebody, can you tell me about the social model of disability? The answer would undoubtedly be no. Yeah. 
and so it's just something that's not it hasn't i don't know whether whether how you get the traction on it and how you get the get it to hold even you know younger disabled people it's not taught in schools and colleges anywhere no. really. and so i think with younger disabled people as well there's a big challenge there about how do you educate younger disabled people about the social model is it still relevant to them does it do they want the new model do you know what i mean it's all kind yeah. of I personally think we need to keep it and we need to grow it and 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 use it much more. But it's it's something that I don't know if younger people even know about. We 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 did some work um, collectively because mo most of uh, a lot of our work is kind of done in in partnership or collectively with other other DPOs, uh, Theo. But we um, there's a group of us who um, are local disabled people's organisations here in Cheshire. Um, that we um, formed Cheshire Disabled uh, Cheshire Disabled People's Panel, um, and and we did that uh, sort of as a result of the pandemic in part because we're all experiencing the same issues. The ba the barriers are very similar, particularly in the same geographical area. And rather than writing five letters or six letters from all the different individual members, um, that that idea of being able to write a letter collectively from all of us felt felt like a stronger voice a bit like what we've done Theo with the our voices and with the uh, the uh, disabled people's organizations uh, forum England uh, we've had some great success in terms of collaborating and, and joining together to raise raise some of the issues and challenges that disabled people are facing um and I, I think um in in Cheshire that that was helpful because they they did form a um future of social care commission um and we were able to um talk to them about that and to really remind them of the importance of co-production and making sure that disabled people are involved as equal partners in the in the design of policies and and services that are going to affect them um and and really really hammering that point home that it's not consultation because that's that's just saying we've sat in a dark room and come up with something what do you think about it and that's not what we mean at all um but as a result of um it covered lots and lots of different uh, aspects uh, theo uh, as part of that commission from pain for care so obviously lots of people came to talk about what the impact of pain for care was uh, and how that impacted on their day-to-day -day life uh, with lived experience um, but it also uh, covered what a vision for kind of adult social care would be. Um, and it all starts with that kind of not that nothing about us without us that we, we know very well in, in, in this sector, which is, is very real. And as a result of the commission, the local authority um, and, and cabinet accepted the recommendations of trying to embed the social model of disability uh, locally, but also um, kind of underpinning everything with the principles of the UNCRPD, uh, which is great, but there's a huge job there to make sure that happens, Theo. So it, it, it's it's still ongoing. Great. Now, just a de-jargon, wonderful bit of that. The UNCRPD is? Sorry, it's the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Disabled People. Yeah. And that's interesting that idea about you working with other dpos because we started doing that as well during the pandemic or we set up something called the disability alliance and again it brought together local dpos to just have a greater voice and so suddenly instead of 
covering you know a hundred working with a hundred thousand sale people locally you know you're, you just massively increase the number of people that you're reaching and your and your the breadth of knowledge within the organization really yeah. and the local authority then interacts with you much more because they think hang on a minute you're covering all these different groups of people that which is much more an effective way of working I think and I think where we've done that on a national basis as well through kind of the the, the peer support aspects, which was really helpful of our voices during the pandemic, because it's pretty lonely as the chief exec, but being able to speak to other chief execs, I'm sure we're going great at the, at the same time with the, uh, running an organisation during a pandemic. Um, but then the, the Disabled People's Organisations Forum England, uh, I think it's been really helpful to... Well, it's sad, isn't it, that you see the issues replicated up and down the country, but what it shows is consistently the challenges that we're all facing are very, very similar, regardless of where we are from a geographical point of view. And yeah, there'll always be some slight nuances, as we spoke about earlier, but I think there, there is that commonality, and I think we're much stronger when we when we're, we voice those together, rather than all trying to do that individually. Yeah, the commonality is, I mean, it's massive commonality, the, the kind of the social model of disability and the whole sort of oppressive forces against disabled people are the same wherever you are and almost whoever you are. Yeah. And so that's just across the board, whether you're in an urban or a rural environment and whether you have, you're a person with learning difficulties or a person who's a wheelchair user or whether you're, you know, it just goes across all the different groups, whether you're male or female. It's And there are particular groups, sort of the intersectionality thing is a big deal, I I think, which is, um, un, you know, underrepresented within the disabled people's organisations movement. And I think we need more intersectional organisations, organisations working particularly, representing themselves and working with themselves. I don't yeah. know how you feel about that. I mean, do yeah. you have any groups up in Chester? Completely, completely agree around the intersectionality. And I think that's, it, it's become more and more apparent, hasn't it? Um, and I think, that that is is very welcome, but it's about how how we make sure that as collective groups of DPOs, we're, we're reaching those and and, and welcoming those uh, DPOs who might work with specific um, individuals. That we we've got that intersectionality because they you know they're female and disabled or, or 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 whatever the case may be and i think that's really important because the the barriers again are just a, a slightly different but there's always a commonality across all of them yeah and it gets more threatening in in many ways as well so during yeah. the covid you know if you're from a particular minority ethnic group then you have more chance of getting covid and if you're a disabled person you have more chance again and then blah blah and so it goes on yeah, so absolutely yeah you said the name of your, the title of your thesis what was it again it's a um a bird in a hurricane bird in a hurricane a friend of mine was talking about we did i did a conference last year and a friend of mine we, well we named it i named it because he mentioned a phrase he said valuing the valuing the canaries because his idea was about the canary in the coal mine you know canaries are taken down into coal mines and they're there on the basis that if the oxygen runs out or if there's some toxic gas there, then the canaries are first to perish. And so then everyone else gets out. And he said, well, disabled people are the canaries. We are the ones in the hurricane. We are the birds in the hurricane trying to face the hurricane. And when everyone else notices and it starts affecting them, then they begin to take notice a bit more. You know, it's um, it's we are the canaries. Um, you said something just then about being lonely at the top as a chief executive, and that's something that's always struck me. You know, 
it's not so easy for you to turn around as a chief executive and say to somebody else, hey, what do you do in this situation? Because you are the only one within your organization who's got your job. Yeah. How is that? Is that, you said it's um, quite lonely sometimes, but is it, it must be very challenging. It's challenging, but I love a challenge, Theo. But it's, you know, I've got it's a, I've got a good board who I could pick up the phone and, and you yeah, know, I could talk to the board and say, this is what I'm thinking, because I've got delegated authority for, for most things, Theo. Um, but I can kind of pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, this is this is where my train of thought is. What do you think about that? Um, but I think the most helpful is just having really strong relationships with the disabled people's organisations there, because you can't you can't beat it. You can't beat talking to other people from other disabled people's organisations that genuinely understand what it is that you're experiencing from the same job role. So actually, even just picking up the phone and talking to a neighbouring chief exec from a DPO in the next uh, sort of county over. Uh, can be tremendously helpful um, but I think that sharing sharing information and knowledge is helpful there were some things that we'd done for example around a Covid risk assessment and uh, and a Covid policy that actually other chief execs said oh that'd be really helpful if you've already done it we share it with me so we, we don't have to start from you know zero um, and you know, very willing to kind of share that. And equally, if someone else had done something else first, it, it can just be helpful to help you hit the ground running, really, so to speak. It feels to me a bit like we as organisations are getting better at that. I yeah. remember back in the days, you know, I set a couple of organisations up, and there was a real kind of sense in those days that you were on your own. You know, organisations were working on their own, and it was very difficult to share information. There are you know, obvious times when we're in competition with each other, for example, over because there's very little funding out there. And so if you come across a pot of funding that's available, you might not share that news so widely. But I think that's changing a bit. I think we we do share that information more widely now. I think that is changing, Theo, because I, I think it has to. You know, one of our when we re, when we decided to rebrand uh, in 2020 and um, we, we did postpone it Theo, because of the pandemic. It was supposed to be in April 2020. But um, we didn't uh, go ahead with it until the August. Um, but it, for, for me, that that one of our clear values is about collaboration, and I don't. We can't do everything ourselves. We we have to we have to work together. It's it's the only way that I think D, DPOs can have the the voice to be able to try and influence change because we're not there yet Theo and there's still a way to go you know we're, we're not living in in a society where disabled people don't have any barriers uh, that's not where we are so there's still uh, plenty of work for for us DPOs to do um, but I think we have to work together and I think um, that helping with capacity building it is crucial so you know making sure that where it's a relevant contract that should be delivered by disabled people's organizations for example like you know advocacy or or, or direct payment support um that we, we we work with other local dpos to make sure that they they can deliver that in their local area and if they've not got the experience of doing it then we we can help you or if it's something that we've not got experience with hopefully we'll be able to find a partner that'll be able to work with us and vice versa but i think that's really important that we, we continue to work together because I think we've got proven examples through the pandemic through those different routes that we've got on those national kind of forums where we're all coming together and we're all 
we're all fighting for the same common goal uh, to try to try and make things better. And it is amazing because there are commonalities, but there are amazing differences. So, you know, I do know some local authorities that contract their local DPO to provide direct payment services, and I know others that don't. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite mixed here, Theo. So um, at the moment, we're uh, commissioned to deliver one, and we work in part because it goes across a footprint. So we work with another DPO as well. Um, but we lost... Um, one on the other half of the county and that went to a non-disabled people's organisation um, which is really sad and obviously we, we hear that up and down the country where, where that's happened but I think I think it's that's incredibly sad because there's something unique about what disabled people's organisations can do from that peer support aspect of supporting disabled people but I think we've got to get better at how we explain what our USP is, our unique selling point, and um, when when we're looking at those bids, because you know you're up against shiny, shiny websites and they, they look very polished and very corporate and all very nice, and that might look very attractive. But in reality, you can't beat the outcomes that we can help people to achieve, Theo, because of that lived experience aspect and the fact that your workforce, your board, your management, your staff your volunteers have, have all got that kind of lived experience and understand um, the process and have probably gone through that process themselves in terms of looking at directing their own care or, or whatever it might be. So I think I think we've got to get better at being more vocal about the value that we bring as, as disabled people's organisations because we've, we've lost something, I think, Theo, since... Um, you know, the Improving Life Chances report, for example, or the Putting People First Concord out where it mentions having a, a DPO in every local authority area. We, we don't have anything like that to fall back on anymore. So it's become harder to, 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 to stand out, really. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it, though, that these, uh, that these services are, are given to non-DPOs to deliver? Yeah. I just wonder what the thinking is within those, within like the local authority when they think actually... You know, if it was a service for women, they wouldn't give it to a male, an organisation run by men for men, would they? No. It doesn't work like that, but it does in relation to disability. Yeah. That we're still being taken care of. Yeah, it's... Um... It's very nice of them. It's very nice of them to look after us in that way, but... It isn't, it isn't, it isn't what we want, and it's... Oh. it's um... But it'll be interesting, you know, where where those cases have happened, where it's it's been awarded to a non-disabled people's organisation. It's interesting to see the longevity of that. So does that only last for like one term? Um, does it get extended? Um, and and actually, do people um, complain about it? You know, because if if everyone if everyone thinks all is well and it, and it's great, then you know they'll they'll be none the wiser really. So I think that's. Um, quite quite a difficult one, but it's it's definitely a challenging environment out there. But I think the only way to to get through this Theo is that we 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 work together and we continue to work together. We need a thing, don't we? Like you say, our USP. We need a. I think what we need is a, a way of measuring the outcomes that we provide that non DPOs don't provide. We need some kind of USP that says actually this is a thing, bang, that they can't do that we can do. Yeah. You know, for me, it's all about social capital, cultural capital. You know, my PhD was all about those different kinds of capital, but it's all about those kinds of things. It's about how disabled people get on with each other, 
the skills and knowledge and understanding that we have that we just bring to the table as soon as we pick up the phone, whatever the person says. Is... It's been a really interesting journey that Theo, just looking at um, kind of so social value really um, uh, and what, what you bring as an organisation. Um, and, you know, I find like some of them were, were great on in terms of the social and the kind of innovation type stuff. And, and to some degree, the economic bits around you know, kind of employing disabled people is, is a great uh, element of that kind of social value. Um, but some of the stuff around environmental can be quite challenging when you look at something like the social value portal. It can be quite challenging for a disabled people's organisation to kind of measure <laughs> Um, you know your, your tonnage or whatever in in, in terms of um, savings um, and the, there's some general things that we, we've done you know with LED light bulbs and so on but some of that it doesn't seem quite as sexy as kind of what they're looking at in terms of the environmental impacts so I think thinking more and more about the environmental impacts and climate change I think it's going to become more and more important to being able to demonstrate that social value because they're not just looking at one or two things they want you to show something social something economic something uh, environmental for example so uh, that's quite interesting to look at but we do we do measure it as an organization um and, and then record that in our annual report which we we started to do last year um and you know that that's fascinating in terms of as an organization the level of value uh, social value that we we generated in in, in the last year um so and we we try and target at least ten percent. So we 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 achieve way over that. So about about thirty eight percent off the top of my head, Theo, I think it was in terms of social value that we generated, putting a figure on it. Yeah, you know, for me, there's this whole thing around. So there's stuff that we do as organisations. So I don't know how many is these are questions that we need to figure out. I think as a sector, but I don't know. So for example, there was a big government employment scheme and it's all about sheltered employment and it's called Remploy and it closed down in 2012. I don't know how many disabled people they employed across the country as as a project, but it might be something, I think it was something like 8,000 disabled people were employed. And I don't know how many disabled people we employ as a sector, but I think we're getting towards that figure. So I think that the numbers of people that we employ is bigger than any kind of government program that they've kind of ever brought in. And so we just do that because it's what we do. And then there's all the other stuff around the health impact that we have. Because if you're employing disabled people, then those disabled people are getting all the social benefits out of being employed. They're getting all the different things that we all value in out of getting work and out of working. Um, you know, all the different health impacts that will have on positive health impacts. And then also the reducing loneliness stuff. You know, they say that loneliness, feeling lonely is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we massively reduce loneliness for disabled people, both as people who we work with, but also the people who we employ and our volunteers. Yeah. So there's masses of stuff in there that we need to kind of unpack, I think, in terms of what we bring and what we save in at the end of the day. It's difficult to demonstrate what, you know, what's not happening, isn't it? If people are working for us, then they're not spending time in health or social care institutions or whatever it might be. Mm. But that's something I think we need to kind of figure out and just really quantify it and knuckle down on that, I think. Yeah, and that 
you know, as an exercise kind of across the board, across all DPOs, uh, as a kind of follow on from, uh, you know, the work that you already started, uh, Theo, in terms of looking at that research and gathering that, I think it's tremendously helpful to bring that together because it, again, shows the, the the true value in the scale, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, de and it demonstrates us as a sector, because I always think it was a separate sector almost. I mean, we're part of the voluntary sector, clearly. We share some of the issues of the voluntary sector, but we do have our own set of issues that we have to deal with as well. I, I, I agree with that. I think there's a, a, play, a place in it um, within the wider community sector, but I, I agree with you. I think DPOs are a sector in, in, in their own right. Um, so that partnership working is critical uh, across those DPOs, more so perhaps than kind of working in partnership with just wider community organisations. Because um, that, that way you can pick up those intersectional bits as well that we talked about. So specific or disabled people's organisations that work you know, with women or particular ethnicity groups. So that's, yeah, that's really important. Yeah working together as a sector so what about the future what does the future look like for dpos you know how do you how how do you do you work with younger disabled people how how do you kind of grow the people to, who are to come into our organizations as it were do you do mentoring programs yeah so we don't do not not um it's not an area that we've done um historically Theo in terms of um, formal kind of mentoring programs if, if you like we do work with younger disabled people so we're able to collate views of disabled people from a wide uh, breadth of ages which is is really helpful uh, to understand where the differences are again in, in terms of people's experiences and, and where that differs um, what we do I mean we've got lots of different services but we do um, a uh, lot of work around kind of work placements or work experience so that that's obviously uh, really helpful for younger disabled people um really really successful in terms of confidence building because you're kind of with people who um you can relate to um and understand the, the challenges that, that you're facing um, and obviously DPOs are amazing at, at putting reasonable adjustments in place that are that are excellent that show that people can work um, with the right providing they've got the right support from the employer ultimately there's an opportunity for people to be able to work um, what we also have is that we with our younger uh, age groups that we work with um, they they may go through a service and they're uh, receiving support through through that group and then they may um, go into volunteering so that they start volunteering within that group to support other young people who were kind of younger than them which is is great so we don't have formal mentoring programs but we, we are kind of supporting people to kind of um, progress um, and, and look at those volunteering opportunities and look at those uh, work experience opportunities or even doing a work placement you know that, that that tends to be younger younger disabled people that tend to do those um placements with us yeah you know i always think of disabled people's organizations as being a fantastic opportunity for disabled people to work in it's pretty much if you can come up with a good idea and we can get funding for it, then you can do it. And if that involves making a film, making podcasts, doing TikTok, whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think there is just like a real strength, I think, within our organisations for 
the potential to be nurturing the next generation and bringing them all on. Definitely. So the future, how's the future? Future's a rosy future? Um, it's. I think it's a challenging future because we can only base it on how things are to, today. Um, but I, I think if we continue to work collectively, um, Theo, uh, as organisations, um, and, and really, you know, I think it is about how we help people understand the social model and what our USP is as disabled people's organisations in terms of that disabled people as equal partners, uh, that whole ingrained approach of co-production. It isn't new to us. It's been our fundamental bread and butter since since uh, we started, because that's what we're about. Um, I, I think. I think we can start to change the the landscape, but every, everything Theo is going to be caveated, I suppose, by what administration you're dealing with at the time and what policies are around disabled people. I mean, that is, you know, crystal ball stuff. But we 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 are only capable of doing what we can do as as DPOs to amplify the voice of disabled people. But we'll also be relying on whatever whatever government uh, policy is at the time. It's quite an amazing thing, isn't it? We are only able to do what we're able to do. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me is a thing that I was thinking about a while ago is about, you know, health and social care and all of that is it's kind of conceptualised the wrong way around, I think. So, you know, there's lots of social care professionals who go out and do their work and this, that and the other. And, we, you know, of course, they need more time. They need more money. They need all the things that they're asking for as do all the health bodies and all of that. But the reality is that social care wouldn't exist without us. No. It's the, the, they, put the, they always put the boot on the wrong foot, I think. Disabled people, we provide employment for thousands and thousands of people across the country. And whole bits of the economy are really reliant on us. And yeah. I think that I don't know how we demonstrate that. You know, I thought one day... You know all the strikes that are happening well if disabled people went on strike and refused social care for a day which we can't do it's life-threatening it's not something i'd recommend but if we could <laughs> no. you know if we could do that it would just demonstrate absolutely how dependent everyone is on us yeah um and it's a real i'm just trying to figure out how that would happen how we would do that what would happen how could that work but it's you know we we generate a huge amount of money in the economy. We keep the economy going in many ways. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about? Um so I think so, Theo. I think we've I think we've covered everything. It's been it's been nice chatting. Yeah, no, it has as well. I think it's been quite a positive thing as well. I mean, we haven't spoken about the cost of living crisis. We haven't spoken about the fact that most people who go to food banks are disabled people. And we haven't spoken about the poorest section of the community are disabled people. And we're always the most downtrodden. But I think those are ground that we've covered before. I'm always surprised it's not more in the press, all of those kind of facts and figures and stats. But I think that goes back to the point earlier, Theo. So, you know, all those things are... Um, are very real at the moment in terms of the impacts and the levels of poverty particularly and and the impacts on disabled people the cost of living crisis energy and again through a lot of collective work through you know the the uh, the uh, disabled people's campaign group uh, the disability poverty campaign group which is a, a group of dpos um 
you know, I've, I've had some great success uh, around around that. And I think that collective work is really important because individually, we, there's a huge issue around core funding and, and that kind of policy work. Um, that the money isn't there quite the same, Theo, around policy work as perhaps where it used to be kind of 15, 20 years ago, um, yeah. which I think is really sad. So actually being able to join forces around that stuff just helps on, on kind of that capacity where we've all got a tiny bit of capacity, but not enough to do huge pieces of work, but together we can be a lot stronger on it. Um, but I think the whole challenge around some of those barriers goes back to that overarching premise of the fact that it doesn't feel as though disability is seen as a protected characteristic um, right now. And that will be why we're not seeing more in the media around uh, cost of living, in my, in my opinion, because disability is kind of not, not being seen as a protected characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. We've just been through another comic relief. And, uh, you know, we are always there in the comic relief, but it's because they're trying to buy stuff for us all the time. Yeah. We're at the wrong end of the chain again. Yeah. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, talking to you, Theo, as always, and look forward to next time. Brilliant. I'll let you know when um, when it becomes available. Thank you very much for your time. Take care. See you later. Bye. Cheers, Bye.